Laramide Resources, we're a Toronto-based company involved in the uranium sector. We're a late-stage developer with projects in the United States and Australia, and we're part of this uranium thematic, which is very strong of late as people get focused on the energy future and the energy transition. Well, they certainly are. Um, and, I, and I guess you you kind of played the waiting game, Mark, right? You said, right, as soon as, as, soon as price starts moving, everyone starts getting interesting again. So I'm interested today to understand what you now have to do. We've seen the PEA last uh, month. Um, tell me tell me about the plan going forward. Sure. Well, as we, we've spoken in the past about the sort of this price that we needed, everyone thought this so-called incentive price was around $65. I think when I saw you last, it was WNA in London. That's right. Things were stirring quite a bit then. That was quite an exciting conference. The utilities, as much as you can see them being nervous, if that's such a thing, they were definitely a little bit nervous at that point that that the price was going to move on them. And it certainly has in that since that period of time, which was what September, we basically went straight up through $100. And you know we're now, we're now in an environment where price is not an impediment really to anybody that has a real project going forward. So and we're in that group there that really we require permits. Uh, and obviously, ultimately, you'll have to capitalize the projects and build them. Uh, but we're sort of in the next wave of developers. There's two, There's a handful of companies that have charged ahead a bit um, to be early into production. And I think those projects are kind of a uh, latter half of this year deliverable, and we'll see how those go. And there's another whole suite of developers that has projects, and we would be in, in, in that group, primarily leading with this one in the United States, which is an ISR project for, for those that are not familiar with that's in situ recovery. It's basically solution mining. Uh, and we have a very nice, very substantial project uh, that we've just Delivered an economic study on it's based in uh, northwestern New Mexico. Right. Okay. So you you've got okay. Let's let's start with the U.S. first. Okay. We'll we'll come and leave Australia for for now. Let's let's focus on the U.S. Right. We've had a few CEOs, Uranium CEOs, kind of come come through the doors recently, and they agree with you. It, it it's hitting up the, this price, uh, a fair amount of price movement, uh, which which is great news. But what I was interested with then was what are they doing to insert themselves into the right group in terms of the way that institutions view them, where that retail investors uh, view them. So it's going to come down to you know what what they're doing um, and whether they can actually get into production. So in terms of the the US ecosystem that you that you're in, all very, very positive. How how do you how do you move each project forward? Okay, we've seen we've seen you've kind of also got ISR, you've got hard rock as well. So what's the priority for you? What's the allocation of capital look like for you? What's the, what's the best use of allocation of capital? Well, let's talk more about about, about timing because really the um, we will talk about these hard rock projects, which which it, the smallest of those may timing wise make it to the head of the pack just because of the nature of it. And you know it needs a mill, and the mill is turning on. That's another situation where we needed price for the only hard rock mill in the United States really to resume production. And really, if you step back to the 10,000 foot level and look at the United States writ large as part of a solution to the uranium supply sh- demand shortfall, you know, it's going to be a modest contributor. I mean, I think if you went flat out at unlimited capital and they gave you the permits tomorrow morning, the max production capacity in the United States, you'd be hard pressed to see it beyond say 15 million pounds. It basically, when it was all hard rock in the last, cycle in the 70s when they were trying to match up supply to all these nuke plants they built because they built a hundred of them in a decade we we never got beyond i think 19 million pounds was peak year year production and that was pre-isr technology technology which really was probably popularized by cameco in wyoming and now the preference probably for these projects is these isr projects just because they're easier to permit they're 
environmentally smaller footprints. You don't leave a, you don't, you know, you're not leaving a tailing stand and everything else. Um, and so there's a whole host of those. And I want to say there's five or six of those. We have one of those, a very good one, a large one. And because we didn't have one that had previously been operated, you know, we're obviously going to be slower than the ones that were basically, they built the plant, they got to wait for the price to turn back on. And you have a couple of those that have started now. And you've still got Cameco stuff on care and maintenance in Wyoming, which is not insubstantial, but they, you know, they've probably mined through the best bit of it, if you will. Um, and we have one where you're going to have to go, first of all, get the, we have all the, fe- the federal permits is required because this is a, uh, not an, what's called an agreement state. You have to go to the feds for a part of your permitting. So we have an NRC license, which is in what's called timely renewal, which means it just is freshened up before you start mining. But we have to re-permit the New Mexico piece of it because the rules changed in 2015 during the bear market. And that's the permit that will be the last permit that we require, at which point we'll be shovel ready. We've initiated that process now. And when that's concluded, which we hope is a timeline like 12 to 18 months, we'll effectively be shovel ready. And at that point, we would build what we effectively said in the PEA, which is, you'll, you know, you'll build the initial well field and a process recovery plant and you'll build uh, resin recovery plants in it, at site and truck the resin to the final recovery site. And that's what most of these ISRs look like. The, the beautiful thing about an ISR thing is it's relatively quick to build because of the nature of what you're building vis-a-vis something like, let's say, Athabasca, where you've got to sink shafts quite deep and takes a long time. And you've also got to build a process plant there. And and the entire CapEx is like $50 million US. So it's a very good starter thing for a, for a development stage company and for the shareholders, because it's not one of these things where, you know, as you're seeing in many parts of the mining business, it could be an existential experience to, to build one of these projects. You may have a great thing, but it, you know, if it costs a billion dollars, it's, 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 it's a bit of a, you know, white knuckle experience getting to the finish line for the management probably and certainly for the shareholders. So we're fortunate not to have that. No, no, no I hear what you're saying, but um, here's the thing. If I look, if I look at the PEA, okay, the numbers sound good, right? You you know, you're, you're, you're producing over 31 years. So you have 31 million pounds over 31 years, million pounds a year, um, 62% IRR. But, you know, let, let, let's say even if it's, you know, a bumpy ride to, together and it's a little bit less than that, it's still exceptional returns. But it's of a certain size, right? And so, and as you say, it's it's hard for U.S. companies to kind of come together. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's my way to produce fifteen million pounds collectively. But what, what, what? Why should investors kind of get into these kind of small American plays? Because it just it just feels like, and look, I'm I'm, I'm not being disparaging it. It's an almost you know NPV eight of you know nearly three hundred million. It's 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 fine. But if I look at some of the valuations being created elsewhere in Canada from people who perhaps aren't even going to get in production in the next 10 years, it, it, it kind of pales a bit. So is the plan get this thing up and running because it's, you know, I say, modest capex, less than 50 million bucks, show that you can do it, and then maybe look to you know build out, sorry, um, buy up more of these opportunities? Because you, you kind of need scale for something like this, don't you, to be, to be noticed? Well, yeah, let me let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, as respect to the project itself, we did a very simplified model which straight line the resource over, you know, a, a mine life with even amount of production every year. In reality, what's going to happen, and the, to the extent that you have the ability to do that, everybody scales up as soon as they can. 
you sort of million pounds is kind of the threshold you need. It's kind of a rule of thumb in these things. You kind of need that to, to have decent return at, at these kind of numbers, $65, $75. Obviously, the numbers look a lot better when you're mining 2 million pounds a year, et cetera. And that's really what you're going to try and achieve as soon as possible. You're going to double up the capacity, et cetera. Now, at the, with the NRC license that we have, we actually have the capacity to, to, to produce 3 million pounds from that site. So we already have all the capacity technically that we need. Now it's a question of getting the production up and running. Now, in terms of what the bigger picture, our our vision of the way the whole company would go is that, you know, I've said this, said this many times before, and um, is that we wanted to effectively be, you know, the second banana to, to Cameco or something like that, very much like Paladin was in the last cycle, where they basically were trying to create a diversified company that was a very attractive to the utilities because they wanted a diversified source of production from mines and what have you. And they wanted scale because if they wanted to do contracts, they didn't care if they got it from mine number one or mine number two or whatever. They just wanted a contract for a certain amount of production and know that they would get it. And your, that your, your whole raison d'etre is to be a supplier to the nuclear utility industry. And so to the extent you get scale, you've got to get it other ways. Now, we have a much bigger project in Australia that when you put it together with our American stuff, maybe an acquisition or two, you can easily see how you can get to eight or 10 million pounds. Your point is very well taken, though, Matt, in terms of these American ones. Most of the ISRs, in reality, they're, they're, they're a million to two million pounds a year. That's it. They're going to, for those companies to get bigger, they're going to have to probably do some kind of an M&A thing or realistically go find another one. Now, most of this, the, the American West has been extraordinarily well drilled in the 1970s. Most of the things that would lend themselves to being ISR producers are known. So you're really now looking to other, probably other jurisdictions. And as I said before, I don't think if you ask most of the American companies, what's the peak production in America that you can achieve? No, I mean, I don't think they're going to say it's 30 or 40 million pounds a year. Now, the, I, to the other point, though, about the on the on the other end of the spectrum, I would take with a grain of salt the ridiculous NPVs that come out when people say I'm going to start my mine at 20 or 30 million pounds a year, because there is a market that you have to feed yourself into. And even in a tight supply scenario like we have right now, you can't you've got to have utility support. I don't know, for at least half of it, I would think coming out of the ground, you're not just going to be able to start taking 20 million pounds out of the ground without a home. So there's probably a balance there. So I, some of these bigger things that are going to happen in the basin, that remains to be seen. That's the biggest unanswered question to me in the whole uranium business is how does that, how does Canada scale up from where it is right now, which is what, 20 million pounds. First, they have to, first they have to make sure they continue producing the 20 million pounds or whatever it is that they're producing or 30 or whatever it is, because you got the French are in there as well these two big deposits. And and then you've got to maybe incrementally get some more, but there's a finite market for that. Because there's a finite amount, there's a finite amount of really Western contracts, if you will. I mean, I don't believe that they're going to bring Saskatchewan on to satisfy Russian nuclear demand. I think that would be pretty brave if they <laughs> did. <laughs> I think they figured but, out that there's a country a lot closer to them that they could get supply yeah. from. You know, and that's one of the things that really is a feature of our market now. Is this 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 is this bifurcation east versus west is a big thing that was not in the last big uranium cycle, which is which is important. Yeah, for, for sure. Maybe we can talk yeah. about that at the end. But, but but I think I guess also now I'm just thinking in the minds of the utilities, having seen flooding 
cause issues in Canada. You know, cigar like Robert Lake obviously, you know, have had their own their own problems, uh, not not least of all COVID. You know, so like reliant on one big supplier perhaps isn't the at the top at the top of their agenda either. And having some, you know, I guess de risking by having multi location, multi jurisdictional uh, supply is, I guess, somewhat more comforting. Uh, for utilities in terms of their risk management, but look, like I say again, that's for, further down the line. If, if I, just sticking with you, so if what, what I'm hearing from you is that um, there's potential because you, you mentioned the phrase not just in terms of how you build out maybe slightly quicker than the PA is suggesting um, with Church Rock, but um, how M and A might be. Because Australia again, we'll come. We will come to Australia because, like I say, it's a kind of fairly binary um, outcome potentially there with the elections, and, and I want to get your view on that in a second. But it, it, M and A—that's all I'm hearing from lots of um, uranium CEOs at the moment who perhaps have been around the block uh, a bit longer. Um, I kind of feel from them, I I'm more willing to accept that they are serious about that rather than just some throwaway comment and go, "Oh, M and A is never off the table." So. Do you, do you think for you, do you think you've got some proof points to deliver, i.e. you've got to get project number one funded and maybe start the build process before you can, you can do that? Or do you think the market is just going to allow you to raise the money you need to be, be able to maybe roll up some of these North American smaller plays? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. It's a good question. As you're asking if we were doing the uh, M&A or we have versus inbound M&A, um, for certainly from an inbound M&A standpoint, no, people were getting inquiries all the time about, would you know, would you do this? Would you do that? It, it turns out most of the people don't have this vision about creating this big company that's a big supplier to the utilities. They're, they're much more interested in creating some kind of geographic center, no matter how big it is, because that suits their uh, ability to manage the assets and what have you. Because it is a bit of a challenge when you have things in different continents that are many time zones apart. But the, but the deposits are where they are. And so... And also, it's a very small suite. Of, you know, you know the space. It's a very small suite of companies, and within that suite of companies that have plausible assets that can produce uranium, the few that have charged ahead, and really, there's only three of them now that are that are going to deliver. I think into the latter half of this year, and they're all restarts. So that's why the things are slow. We're into just the restarts. These are things that already had substantial infrastructure attached to them, etc., operated before. We're then going to get into things like ours that obviously need to be constructed for the first time. And then and then you're into the more substantial things that are the billion dollar plus capex things. And even then we're probably short. So that you can see the the it's a bit of a dilemma because of that and because of that whole bifurcation thing that that has developed. I mean, you put yourself in a position if you're a Western user, substantial user of uranium, say a company like uh, Arano, for example, I mean, I wouldn't want to be the management of that company if you look what's happened to their visibility on production in the last three or four years. You know, they've, they've, they're, I think they're owed pounds out of Saskatchewan because Saskatchewan hasn't gone quite as well. Next thing you know, there's a coup in Niger. Next thing you know, this is, this is like ripped from the headline stuff. This is last week. Uh, yeah, we're going to do a deal in Mongolia, which I know something about, you know. And uh, lo and behold, oh, surprise, surprise, the Mongolians, you know, didn't sign on the dotted line. And and my guess, the Russians are interfering in there would be my would be my guess if I had to hazard a guess on it. Um, and suddenly that source of supply, which is this deposit they found a long time ago, is 
well, who knows? So those those kind of companies got to think, where are we going to get supply? I mean, they've, they sort of have, that's why they have to have their fingers in many different possibilities and permutations of possible future production just to get the supply they need to keep the lights on in France. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. And frankly, we're, we're all probably going too slow, but governments are part of the problem. Like governments, as much as they say they want to, you know, they want to get behind certain things. You know, it's only a few countries where they say we're really getting behind this thing. And they, you know, a couple of years later, you have an industry that most of the, most of Western countries, it really, it really doesn't go that quickly for a variety of reasons. Yeah. I, I, I kind of think the, I think governments are looking downstream rather than upstream in terms of uh, funding or making ca- capital available. And, and even that's not necessarily a whole bunch of cash. It's a whole bunch of incentives, which is a slight, slightly different play and uh, that the company is um, reliant on their ability to persuade others that that incentive will, will, will play out um, and over a long period of time. But look, again, let's suffer another day here. But look, I just want to, I want to, I want to focus on you because it's really, really important that I understand what I'm investing into. It sounds like potentially you're saying, well, we could set ourselves up to be a, a takeover target. That might be a slightly easier play in all of this because it's, it's hard work kind of rolling up assets. It's time consuming. It's also potentially maybe not the best thing to do with our with our money. Um, is, am I am I reading you right, or are you keeping all options I on the No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that so much, is that we we are on this continuum. The assets that we have, which we've held on to because we understood that we thought maybe one day uranium will come back and we own very good tier one type assets. You know, when you're in the lowest cost quartile with things of, you know, relative, relatively substantial size, you're typically yeah. not just going to go, oh, maybe we should just, give this up and go into blockchain or something, you know? So we held on. I mean, no one, we think we've had this conversation before. Nobody in the business thought we're, ah, we're signing up for a 10 year bear market. Let's let, you know, let's get some supplies in. Cause it's going to be a while. Every uh, six months followed by another six months followed, you know, that's how all these things roll. And uh, you know, 10 years goes by, but that's created the conditions we have today where it's, you got this massive shortfall. So, it's the good part is that the next few years are going to be quite good because you got to make up for all these years that were really nothing much got accomplished. So we're, our assets are in this continuum of moving along and they will be in production in the, in the kind of an ordinary sequence. Sometimes it's frustrating for shareholders because you can't like put a date on it because, well, there's a permit that someone has to give us. Listen, we have things today that we would, if we had permits in our hand, we would go out tomorrow and break ground. Probably on, you wouldn't do both simultaneously as a junior because it would be irresponsible. But you would go and you would build the first smaller one, get cash flow, and then immediately be breaking ground on the second one. And within a few years, you'd have, Laramide would have six, seven, eight million pounds of production. But how, how do you do that? Just given, given the stage of that. I mean, is there enough, of all the studies that you need to be done, have they been done? What do you understand about the economics and how you get after this? I get that it's like low capex stuff, great, but that doesn't actually guarantee margin which is what it's about making money so why why can you get it get after it so quickly well you mean you have first of all we've done a lot of, a lot of work has been done on these assets on the american asset you know the the and, I, and the similar for all these isrs they were all they mostly weren't drilled out by the current people running these companies they were drilled out by typically big oil back in the day ours was drilled out by by big nuclear it was united nuclear which is a division of general electric and the reason they were out looking for deposits was because when they sold the nuclear power plant, they had to be able to sell people, you know, the 
the equivalent of the light bulbs that kept the thing running. So they had to, everybody got into the, and the French were in it. Everybody was in it. That's what, if you remember Atomic Anne in the last cycle, that's how the French ended up buying that thing in in, in uh, Namibia, which was sort of an ore body, but turned out not to be because they had to convince people when they sold them a power plant that they had, could sell them some, the first five years of supply to put into the power plant. And so that's those legacy assets from even back that cycle are still around, but those are rapidly diminishing. Those are the ones now that are first off the rank and that to be followed, the last probably are the ones that were found in Saskatchewan during the bear market. That's the west side of the basin. And after that, the cupboard's pretty bare when you start looking at it, really. Um, obviously, there was other stuff found on the east side of the basin, but those things are not as substantial. Um, and in the case of Australia, you know, it was a Rio Tinto project. And so on top of that, we probably spent 40 or 50 million on it, doing more work, confirming their drilling, two separate economic studies. You know, it was the lowest quartile thing. It, our, its relative place in the, in the ranking of deposits won't have changed in the last 10 years relative to, because we haven't found a whole suite of other things. It's not like a, say a lithium where, you know, first of all, no one knew anything. It's like all these things when they first happened, no one knows anything about it. So no one knows anything about lithium. Then they don't really know if this one's better than that one. And then you have a new technology comes in like DLE. And so everybody just doesn't understand where how the economics run. In uranium, it's very simple. We are working with a very small number of things that have been around for a long time and they will happen in a very logical Probably a very logical order. Okay. Well, let's let's get on to your project, Westmoreland in, yeah. in Australia. You did a bit of drilling last year. You got a bunch more drilling um, that you're planning this year. So tell us where that project's at. And can you, can you talk about it in the context of Australian politics? Australia is not, currently, is not pro-nuclear, right? That's, that's fair to say. The election coming up later this year, is anything going to change? I don't think it's pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear. It's it's a policy of one of the two parties that they have for a long time not been, they're not certainly not wildly bullish about nuclear and happy to promote nuclear. They're over, they're over their antagonism towards producing uranium at the federal level. That's all gone away. There's a couple of states where the state labor parties really basically to appease a green voting block that they need to have in their camp in order to win elections, win majorities. However, the green vote is now changing. The green vote now in the most recent polls in favor of SMR. So the policy ideologically, and this is exactly what happened in Sweden recently, where they're actually going to go through and they have to change the legislation. Eventually, basically everyone, if they, if they want to have cheap electricity and they care about the environment, the nuclear is going to make a big comeback. And nuclear is having a moment and I, I think this moment's going to continue for quite some time now because it's got a huge tailwind from a variety of factors. And eventually it'll catch up to Australia. They're very sleepy and it seems like they're out of touch because they're so far away. But they will get with the program eventually, I believe. That irrespective of that, there's a state election coming up. And if that party gets voted out, then we're good to go anyway. So as we were in 2012, we had a moment before during the long bear market where we had the politics where we needed it, but the price was $25 a pound and nothing was going to get built. So there is no legislation that has to change or anything else. I think when people think about nu Australia is not in favor of nuclear, there's a debate about nuclear energy in Australia. And there is legislation 
nationally in Australia that says we will can't build nuclear power plants. So if a new government of a different stripe got in, they would have to jump through some hoops to make it so that they could build nuclear reactors. But that's some ways off. They have drunk the Green New Deal Kool-Aid in a massive way there, um, like probably akin to what Germany did, really. You know, they had very, very cheap power and now they have very, very expensive power because basically big renewables has come in and, and has the ear of the government. And and that it's a debate actually going on in the Australian media, literally as we speak. It's going to be a featured issue in the next federal election in Australia, which is in 2025. And the other party is basically saying we want to bring in the possibility of SMRs in Australia. Right. And bringing in reactors, or whether they be small modular reactors or fully grown ones, um, is, is one thing. But mining uranium might be another. So do you think that sort of change in sentiment will allow miners, new miners, to actually you know, start trying to extract uranium from the ground? Well, it's the, the, the whole issue, because it's, it's silly, sort of a silly anachronistic issue that dates back to this one party. So it's, it's very confusing to follow it without a program. But what will happen if... In the states, when the state government changes, there is no legislation. There's nothing to change. It's just the view of one person that says, when I'm in power, don't send me a mining application to mine your uranium mine because I'm not giving you a permit. Now, when the new government comes in, the next minute, it's like, can you bring me the permit by Friday? And if we had the permit ready by Friday, we'd be good to go. And that is sort of a, that's exactly what happened in Western Australia, by the way. They had the same thing that there. There were four deposits there that, and there, these are deposits, uh, you know, a couple of these are quite substantial owned by Cameco. They all got permitted in the, in the window of time when the other party was out of power. Was that, was that the three mine, three mine policies? Or that, or that, no, that, it's, that's the seventies. That's, that's a whole, that's a whole nother thing. The three mines policy has gone away. There is no three mines policy anymore. So in Australia, you needed two sets of permits to have a uranium mine. You needed a, all your environmental operating type permits, they were at the state level like they would be at the province in Canada or at the state level in the United States. And then you had a federal permit that allowed you to export the uranium from Australia to another country. And they would only allow you to export it to a to countries that had signed the non-proliferation treaty. And, and even that, that one party, the Labor Party said, we don't even want you to do that. You got away, we, you slipped three mines by us including Olympic Dam, which they pretended was a copper mine in order to kind of get it through the gauntlet. And so they had these three mines and they stopped it at that. And then eventually that went away. That went away in 2007. As though it's been gone for 15, 16 years now and nobody talks about it anymore. That's done. All of the chatter is all about should Australia have nuclear power? Because of course, they're, they, they are one of the biggest coal producers in the world. And yet they, so they have this policy now where it's terrible to burn coal in Australia, but they make all their money shipping coal to other countries. So- Not in my backyard, it's called, Mark. Sometimes because the politics, you get dealt these, you get dealt these hands in politics. You figure sooner or later, sanity will prevail. I'm a big believer in that, you know, sanity will prevail. And I think that's upon us relatively soon because of, first of all, there's an election that's probably going to go our way anyway, but if not- the population and the younger population, and this must be what will per will terrify labor in the polls. They just took a poll, and for the first time, the younger people are pro nuclear, 
And so I'm feeling a lot more optimistic about where this is headed over the next couple of years. Sweden being Sweden being a template for how this all probably rolls. Yeah. 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 For, yeah, for sure. I've just come back from. Um, so, so just just so therefore you're saying we are maybe going to take a bit of a head start here and we believe it's going to be positive. So therefore we are going to allocate a budget for Westmoreland uh, for, for drilling. Um, to what end? What, what, what are you drilling to find out? What, what do you need to know? What are you going to be able to do as a result? Yeah. So that, yeah, that's a great question. So we do get asset too, is it why don't you just wait, et cetera. So we have a very nice situation, 50 plus million pounds. It's a, it would be a top 10 global uranium mine, lowest quartile, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if we can make it 65 or 70 million pounds, which we think is, we have the ability to put some, you know, quote unquote, easy runs on the board. Just because when we got it, we spent all our time validating the, the what had been done previously and doing economic studies to show that it worked rather than trying to make it bigger. There was a lot of exploration potential. We've expanded the land position massively because we wanted to own the whole district. And we started a couple of years ago, very small. And then last year in a bigger way, we drilled about 4,000 meters. We drilled 40 some holes, drilled a bunch of these targets. We got pretty interesting results all over the place. We're going to come back this year with a much bigger program, probably at least a couple of rigs, with the goal of getting, say, 65, 70 million pounds. If we could extend that mine life and suddenly you've got a five or six million pound a year deposit, that becomes of much more interest to the utilities, becomes of much more interest even to the governments because they start looking. If you know, if you can go to the government and tell them a story, well, we want to build this uranium mine and it's quite big and it's meaningful, that's better than if it's small. And so- you know, the economics might get enhanced a little bit, but by and large, you're probably going to be talking about more extending mine life than throughput to for scale, but you probably got some scale implications as well. And so we just think it's a, a very useful thing to do and it's not expensive. And then the other thing we want to do to be ready is we want to have a kind of 90 day action plan ready to go on the back of the outcome of the election, because we want to be able to tell people, listen, you know, we, we knew this would a binary that was coming and we're and we're prepared okay so but it's a slightly different project in in the sense that it's you know just over 300 million dollar mark uh uh capex um on on that the irr is about half of what you were you were saying um at church rock etc because it's a much bigger project do you, do you feel that in, in terms of in terms of the that that kind of paperwork process that you can have to run through in ours you don't quite yet know what hoops you're going to have to jump through. Um, so you can't be entirely prepared for that. Um, but again, the question you're going to get asked all the time since you get into the study phase, um, which is, you know, how quickly do you think you could get this up and running? Because governments come in and governments leave. So you've got to move quite quickly. Well, our our working assumption is that if the government changes and you get the the liberals in there that they will follow the template that they produced back when they were last in power in 2012 to 2015. And they went around specifically and not only did like a listening tour and everything else about permitting and what they wanted to see, but they produced their own 200 page booklet and said, look, we're going to be super sensitive about the whole permitting side of this thing. And, you know, they always obviously have some uranium mines in Australia, so they know how to do it. They have expertise nationally. But that that exists. So basically, they, they've got a book on the shelf they can pull and say, listen, we're good. This is 
This is how we're right. going to permit a uranium mine versus a regular mine. So they really don't have to do anything other than just default to what they've done already. And we're we're assuming that that's what's going to happen. As I said, no legislation has to change or anything else. We just have to be ready to go. We started down the track in that last window of time when it was available to us to do the, you know, the baseline work and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, it'll, you know, any kind of permitting exercise is a couple of year exercise for a project of this scale. This is, as you said, it's a much bigger CapEx thing. It's a, you know, reasonable open, it's a typical open pit kind of thing with a plant and and what have you. And it, this is a project of sufficient scale that the prudent way to finance it would be underpinned by utility contracts. Right. To some okay. degree. And it, right. So it's, yeah, it was, it was fairly standard stuff, right? But it's, so no surprises there. But if I if I look at the value of your company and try and understand where that value is being attributed, right? You're sitting as a what a return on twenty million market cap company today, share price up around ninety cents. Um, you know, and you've been going through going through the phases, um, you know, since halfway through last year. But that's a reaction to mar- market price, market sentiment. How do I look at your portfolio and say, well, that's where the value lies? Because you're listed on the TSX, you're listed on the ASX, and you're also an OTC company. How's trading? Where do you think value lies? Well, part of the reason we were excited to get some economic numbers on the US out was to underpin the value of the whole company and say, listen, if you want to put a uh, measuring the weight of of uh, value on something, you know, use some kind of NPV nav value on something that pretty clearly has a path forward and a reasonable time defined timeline. And then this other thing over there with it has this political thing that needs to happen. That's more of your uh, probability weighted prediction market weighted thing. And I think we're getting, I think we're getting, and really the, the bigger asset, as you've alluded to right at the beginning, you know, when you insulted our little million pound a year, USR project <laughs> um, is the the you know the the big trophy asset is that asset because not only is it big already it can get bigger and then we own the whole district and you know that that you know is is that a billion dollar asset in a market where suddenly that we can build it and you know the French are like shut out of everywhere and you know you can you can easily see a scenario where it's pretty easy to make that happen pretty quickly I mean if the if that government goes from being, um, and I wouldn't say they're hostile, but you, just our conversation that we just has, no one understands Australia. It's all just too hard. Like, call me when it's easy. It just goes to being easy. Then we're going to get a lot more value for that. And I don't know when we're not really getting any of that pickup yet. I mean, because I don't know, everybody's a day trader now. Maybe we've got to get closer to the day of the outcome, you know? Um, but I think before the election comes, we're going to start to see more interest in people betting on the outcome there because it's not a crazy outcome that it can happen. I mean, it's not, it's, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not betting the 200 to one shot in the horse race here. This is like a, the, the party that, that we want to win is, is leading. So, and you know, the other, the other group have been in for nine or 10 years and you know, in a democracy, that's okay. You had your chance. That's just what we do in democracies. You get your 10 years and you're out. So we're feeling pretty good about the outcome of the election. Okay. Well, like I say, that, I think that's a, perhaps why there's not as much value being attributed there because people want to kind of move closer to that point and, and possibly even after the election to kind of you know attribute you with 
more value, but it's a big project, starting off as a two million pound project. So it's got it's got some scale to it out, out of the gate, and maybe you can make that bigger as well. You know, all all in your control, which is great. Um, so like, I think that's kind of helped me get a sense of, you know, how this company moves through the phases. And because you made a big statement at the beginning, which is like, you know, you're, you're kind of like part of the, 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 fr- the front runners, as it were, advanced development, you called yourselves. So, um, I just want to sort of understand, you know, are you one of the ones that can get into production, will get into production or just talking a good game? Um, you know, and how those, how those assets in the portfolio are being developed. You've not sat on your hands of late um no i, guess I mean looks like 2024 these, looks these are not too. these are not tr- you know there was i can't remember who the market analyst was he called them trading sardines these are not trading sardines these are these are sardines that are being ready for production and you know they, the, the, the goal of the company these are very good assets that frankly they need to get built the i would say that whole group of us and i, you know, I used to call it the survivor group the group that made it of assets that made it from the last cycle to this cycle. The reason they made it is because those are the assets that the nuclear utilities need to get see get developed. Because they need, they we have a real problem, and now we have a super duper problem because if Kazakhstan either a sells everything they have to Russia and China, which was kind of always obvious that that probably might go that way anyway. Never mind all uh, the other geopolitical things that have happened, or b they don't have what they say they have which is kind of a bigger problem because that means the shortfall is even bigger, then we have a more urgency to get the remaining things out there that exist in the world online quick, more quickly. And obviously we have a few of those and that's those things. And I would say all of those assets really have all just moved forward. I think the ones, the, the ones that, the, that have moved that people are talking about production, those are all restarts. They, they always could move quicker because they're restarts. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Sort of, I but don't like think I people. Said, I'm not sure the. I'm not sure the market really understands that people are. Uh, to the, and rightly so, they get a lot of credit for doing it and for taking the game because they the people that did the restarts, they started the restarts before we had price certainty beyond sixty five. Like they just said, this is going to happen. We're doing it. Full credit to them for cranking on and doing, it, and they're ready to go now in twenty four, latter half of twenty four. And everybody else kind of had to wait a little bit because we had we had so many f- false dawns in the uranium price including when we went to 65 once and then immediately back to 45. And at 45, really, you couldn't do anything. I mean, that sort of explains why Cameco even is, you know, you don't, Cameco wasn't racing to get back to capacity. They're, so they're a little bit behind, partly because they're price dependent as well, in, in, in a way. Well, yeah, and I, again, I don't think they were rushing to get back into Wyoming uh, either, but obviously things have changed. So the, all, all good news. Um, well, Mark, um Look, appreciate your time today. Um, I hope to catch you in Toronto um, next week as uh, so, well. Mean, so, you know, that'd be great. Uh, sort of chat, chat a little bit more. Um, so, appreciate appreciate that. And uh, nice to see the, see the market reacting. Nice to see you know um, you know investors kind of re- reacting to this. I think we're in a little reset at the moment, a little little pause, which is fine. But the general trend seems to be um, up and. Hopefully we'll continue that way in 2024. So best of luck with your projects and speak safe. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Great to chat today. And we'll see you in uh, we'll see you at PDAC.